Uh, Father in heaven, we pray now that you would um, come and that you would teach us and that you would guide us and uh, enable us to understand all that is true and all that is beautiful um, through the enabling grace of your spirit. And so we ask you to come and to teach us now, and and we do that uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, before I read this text, I just want to throw out this question before we get going. And the question is this. What is your mental picture of the good life? If you could sort of describe the future of what the good life would look like for you, what would it be? Because as I, as I thought about this, for me, it looks a lot like an L.L. Bean catalog where um, there's people outside like grilling and drinking lemonade. Everybody's smiling and laughing with like perfectly straight teeth. There's, uh, there's lots of khaki. And... Um, <laughs> This is sort of my vision of what the good life is. And as I've been reading this passage and sort of wrestling with it this week, it has really sort of disrupted my view of the good life. And so we're getting ready to read it and talk about it, but I hope that it disrupts your view as well. So let me read it with all that in mind, and then we're going to jump in and and talk about it, okay? This is Luke chapter 10, uh, beginning in verse 25, famous passage, and um, let's look at it together. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what's written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? And he answered, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes and they beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And so too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have." Now, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, we've been spending all semester looking at the way that Jesus interacts with real people and asking this question, okay, how is Jesus relevant to our lives? And tonight, this person that, Jesus is interacting with is this unnamed man. He's only described by his occupation that he is an expert of the law. He is a lawyer. But don't think like John Grisham, a few good men lawyer. This is not, this is not civil law. This, he is an expert in religious law. So think of him more of like a religious professor or, or a Bible scholar. And so basically the context for this story is really the key to the whole thing because what happens is Jesus has been on the scene teaching about God's law, teaching about the kingdom of God, and yet he has been hanging out with prostitutes and 
money launderers, tax collectors, and uh, drunkards, or to kind of update the language of that. He's been hanging out with uh, skanks and thieves and potheads, people who don't really care about God's law, and yet Jesus is talking about the law and the kingdom all the time. And so this expert of the law comes up and it says in the beginning, verse 25, to test him meaning to trap him, to expose the fact that Jesus is really a sham. He doesn't really care about the law. And so what he does is he throws out this question in verse 25. He says, okay, what do I need to do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to get saved? And he's expecting Jesus to say something like, well, just accept me as your personal savior. It doesn't really matter how you live. The law doesn't really matter. But Jesus doesn't say that. What does Jesus do, right? I mean, he flips the tables and he now sets out to expose the lawyer. And so he asks him a question. You know, he answers the question with a question and says, okay, what does it say in the law? How how do you read the the Old Testament mosaic, you know, Moses' law? And, And so the guy answers with basically just the classical, traditional summary of the Old Testament law, which people did at this time. They just kind of boiled the whole thing down to these two ideas of, Love God with your heart, soul, mind, strength, everything about you, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus goes, yeah, that's, that's good. Good grade. Thumbs up. Great. You answered right. Do this and you will live. Now, just to be clear, a little side note, Jesus is not advocating salvation by works. Hey, follow the law and then you will get into heaven. Because what Jesus is doing is he's basically saying, okay, when you love God with the totality of your being, and when you love your neighbor with the same enthusiasm that you love yourself, you will actually come to life. That's what he means by that word live. You will actually be alive. You know, this guy wants to talk about how the law relates to um, eternal life in the future. And Jesus widens the discussion to say, okay, let's talk about how the law relates to all of life now. If you live like this, you will find out that you really are alive. You will will really be living then. It's kind of like that... um, that rap song, I don't know who it's by, I don't know what the title is, but it's the last line in the verse where he says, everybody dies but not everybody lives. You know that song I'm talking about? Yeah. Maybe. Uh-huh. Braveheart? Braveheart? <laughs> <laughs> it's from the Braveheart soundtrack. And, um, but he has this line, I don't know who it's by, everybody dies but not everybody lives. And that's what Jesus is getting at. He says, if you really want to live, if you really want to experience life as it was meant to experience, if you were meant to experience life, then do, just do this. Love God with everything that you are and love your neighbor with all the enthusiasm that you love yourself. Now, if you think about that for a second, that feels very overwhelming and not that doable. I mean, just, just let that settle for a second. Love God with all that you are all the time and meet the needs of your neighbor with the same speed and resources and enthusiasm that you meet your own needs. And the Bible scholar begins to sense this is not really manageable or doable and I don't like that. And so he throws out this question and says, okay, well, how do you define the word neighbor? Because, and it says he's, he's doing this because he wants to justify himself. He's saying, okay, neighbor can't just mean anybody. It has, to, it has to be restricted to who is my neighbor and who is not. So let's boil this thing down. Let's whittle it down so I know how I can keep this law. 
And that's, what Jesus, uh, that, that's when Jesus launches into this famous story, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is, you know, it's a very simple story. A, a Jewish guy is going down the road. He gets jumped by these robbers, and they take all his money and leave him kind of unconscious and bloody on the side of the road. And uh, two religious people walk by, a priest and a Levite, and they don't attend to his needs. They just keep going. And, and, and a Samaritan, which, by the way, Jewish people hated, and Samaritans hated Jewish people just culturally, comes up and actually stops and takes care of the man and meets all of his needs. And then at the end of the whole story, Jesus goes, okay, now which of these three was the neighbor? And of course, the guy, he can't even say Samaritan because he hates Samaritans so much. He just sort of putters out, it's the one that showed him mercy. And Jesus is like, okay, do this. Go and do likewise. The end. That's it. Let's close in prayer. No. Um, (laughs) What I want you to see is that with this whole conversation, Jesus is really teaching us what it means to be those types of people who act mercifully to our neighbor. What does it mean to, to live the good life, to be people that embody this as a lifestyle, that we love God and we love people like this? And so what I want to do is we just kind of talk about what it means to be merciful like, like the Good Samaritan was. I just want to highlight three sort of principles from this conversation. I want to talk about the necessity of mercy, the extent of mercy, and then the motive of mercy. Okay? So the necessity, the extent, and the motive. So let's just look at these uh, just one at a time. Okay, let's look at the necessity of mercy. One of the reasons Jesus is telling this story is to expose the lawyer's hypocrisy. Because, okay, he is this religious guy. He knows all the right answers. He's religiously orthodox. And so he puts in in the story two characters who are religiously knowledgeable and yet don't love people. They have all the right information in their head and yet they don't love people. And Jesus is saying... Look, it's not enough to have the right theology. It is not enough to just know about the Bible and know right Bible answers. That is not helping anybody. The call is to love other people tangibly and to meet their needs. Now, why does Jesus demand this? Because if you think about it, there is real radical evil taking place here. Where this man has been victimized by evil people and he's left there dead. And so Jesus says, God is in the business of raising up needy and broken people to attend to the needs of other needy and broken people. And you can talk about love and feel it all day long, but if you don't actually do anything about it, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't, it doesn't work. It, it makes about as much sense as the musical group Bone Thugs and Harmony. Okay, you know, Bone Thugs and Harmony? I don't typically picture... I don't picture thugs standing around harmonizing with one another. <laughs> but Bone is. Bone Thugs and Harmony is. Please tell me y'all know what Bone Thugs and Harmony is. Okay. I was afraid that I had missed your generation. Um, but, th- but that's about as much sense as it makes. Thugs standing around harmonizing, and here's a guy that has all the right theology in his head, and yet be- he doesn't act on it. And as a result, he proves that he doesn't have the right theology in his head. And so here's the point. Here's, um, let's actually make this just a little bit more practical and personal because what's scary is that this guy knows the right Bible answers, his theology is correct, and yet he doesn't actually love people. 
And for some of us, that describes us. Where we have the right theology, you know, if you're in Bible study and the leader kind of throws out a question, you answer the question right every single time. You know what you're talking about. You know what the Bible teaches. Maybe you were raised in church. Maybe you just have kind of absorbed it. And yet, your life is still consumed with you. Your time is yours. Your resources, your money, it is yours. And that is sacred. Your time is yours. And Jesus just sort of tells us the story to say these first two guys had carved out such a life where they didn't have the time or the willingness to actually meet another human being's need. And Jesus says that is not love. You can talk about it all day long. You can feel it. But love is primarily an action that is required. The right theology in your head that doesn't translate into a a life of practical uh, uh, meeting people's needs practically, it, it is worthless. It's worthless. I mean, regardless of how people feel about Coach K and, and Duke basketball, you have to admit that he is a basketball genius. He is smart. He knows basketball inside and out. He is, he, he's, a, he's brilliant when it comes to basketball. But you do not want that dude playing on your team. He is 5'8 and weighs like 60 pounds. <laughs> I mean, he would get destroyed in the paint, right? And, and so the point is, having the information in your head, it's not enough in, in where life is actually played out. And so the point here is is, is just simply this. If you are somebody who considers yourself a Christian, and I I consider myself a Christian, so this applies to me as well. For those of us in the room who identify ourselves this way, this type of mercy, this type of meeting other people's needs is not optional. Faith without works is dead, so says James in the rest of the New Testament. That's the point. It is necessary for us to actually meet other people's needs, for, for, for love to be more than just something we talk about and something that we feel, but actually translate into action. That's what it means. That's what the word means. So that is the necessity of mercy. But okay, the, the next question is, okay, to what extent do I, need to sh- do I need to meet other people's needs? To what extent do I need to actually show mercy? Well, here's the second thing I want to look at. Because in order for this Samaritan to be merciful towards this man who's been beaten up on the side of the road, he, he sacrifices three things. This whole act of love and act of mercy cuts into his safety, into his schedule, and into his savings. So let's just look at these one at a time. It cuts into his safety. Now this road that they're on is the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's not just any road. This is actually a a famous road that is notorious uh, for for kind of highway robbery. There was tons of uh, caves and rocks and, and places for thieves and robbers and thugs who harmonize to, to, to kind of wait and ambush and rob people. And so this is probably why the first two guys, one of the reasons why those first two guys kept going, because if you're walking down a scary road and there's a dude who is freshly beaten up, laying there in the road, you've got to realize, okay, the robbers are actually close. <laughs> They're in the vicinity. So for me to stop puts me in harm's way. So that's what the Samaritan does, though. He actually does stop. This cuts into his safety, where he realizes, okay, I'm putting myself in harm's way to care for this man. This is dangerous for me to do this. But this is what it takes to love another human being sometimes. 
You know, I, I have some friends back in Charlotte that intentionally, this is a, a married couple, they intentionally moved into one of the uh, rougher, lower income neighborhoods of Charlotte to, to love on and to try to meet some of the needs of the neighborhood kids, like neighborhood like teenagers. Because what he would do is, is he had his own personal business. And um, what he would do is he'd befriend these neighborhood teenagers and, and try and get them a job so that they're um, learning responsibility, they're making money, they're, they're given dignity in the way that they're working. Is hurt. They're, they're, they're given an opportunity to come out of the system that they were born into. And so he, he and his wife you know, befriend all, you know, all these neighborhood kids. And they've, they've moved in the center of this neighborhood. And they were broken into countless amount of times. And in fact, one night while he was away and his wife was home by herself, one of these neighborhood kids that he had been sort of investing in and loving on came in to beat down the front door to, you know, steal stuff. And she's in there screaming, like, stop. And she's, like, yelling, calling the police. And he's kicking down the door until, it, until the, the hinge eventually breaks. And so I guess that's when it finally clicked for him and, and, he, and he ran off. But they, but they knew, okay, to love... The poor in this neighborhood is going to mean putting ourselves in, in harm's way. That's what we signed up for. This is cut, that it cuts into their safety, and it cuts into our safety when we try to love people who are really needy and who are really broken. So that's the first thing. Cuts into his safety, but it also cuts into his schedule. I mean, look at the amount of time this dude devoted to that injured man on the side of the road. He sees the guy, he stops, and then like, gives medical aid, puts the dude on his donkey, which means now he is actually walking, which is slower than riding. And he takes him back to an inn, which because this road was so barren, it was so desolate, that probably meant that he was backtracking and now going back to Jerusalem where there was an inn. And what does he do? He stays with him the rest of the day and through the night, and he leaves in the morning to go back to his, what he was going to do. Now, now you have to see this. This dude gave up an enormous amount of time, and he said, hey, I'll even be back later to pay for the rest of his bill. I mean, he's committed to this dude over the long haul. He gives up an enormous amount of time. This is cutting into his schedule. It's not like he had other things that he was doing, because he, he was. He was going somewhere when he was going on this road. It wasn't like he was just taking a casual donkey stroll looking for people to help. <laughs> He was going somewhere. He had to cancel appointments. People were probably angry at him because they didn't show up when he said he would. But this is what it takes. This is what it takes to love another human being. It cuts into your schedule. It cuts into your time. So it cuts into your safety. It cuts into his schedule. And it cuts into his savings. I mean, he gives up his personal resources to care for this man. He gives him his own bandages. He gives him his own transportation. And, of course, he forks out all of the expenses for, for his stay at the inn, which would have covered his, his room, uh, his food, his medical needs. I mean, dude has given up cash to, ca- to take care of this other you know, needy person. So what I want you to see with, with all of this is that being merciful to this guy was, was unbelievably costly, unbelievably sacrificial. This is cutting into his safety. It's cutting into his schedule. It is cutting into his savings. He, he has given up a lot for this person. Now, now, what I want you to see is, it, I know that some of you are going, look, I'm all about helping people. I'm all about it. And, and when I get to a place in life where, where I feel like I'm financially in a place, I, I will give money. I will, I will take care of people's needs. Or when I get to a place where I have more free time, I will expend some and I'll volunteer or do whatever. What I want you to see is you've got to be careful with that. 
Because do you think that that is what this passage is calling us to? To, to, to give up our money, give up our resources, give up our time when it fits, when it doesn't rattle us, when it, when it doesn't hurt? I mean, do you see the way that to help this guy hurt him deeply? So don't be fooled into thinking when you get to a place where you're then financially okay and it, and it won't cut, it won't hurt, when you get to a place when you have expendable free time, which you never will, by the way, that you'll then give it up then. You, you know, I... I um, I raise money to do RUF here at App State. This is, this is one of the things that I do is I have to raise my own salary, raise part of the own uh, uh, ministry expenses here. And what I've discovered is that there is this general rule. It's not absolute, but there's this general pattern that forms that the people who have more money, who are well off, more well off, give less money than the people who are less well off. I mean, the people who are, have lower incomes who don't have the amount of resources, actually give more to the ministry. And in fact, I've talked with other people in ministry who don't do RUF that just raise their own money because they're doing their own thing. And they said, yeah, the pattern is there as well. It's just counterintuitive thing. Now, the reasons behind that are for another sermon. But what I want you to see is just to not be fooled into thinking, when I get to a place where, it'll be, where I'll be financially secure, then I'll start helping, then I'll start, you know, sh- I'll start you know, taking care of people's needs. If you're not doing it now when it cuts, when it hurts, why do you think you do it then? It's just, it's, you're fooling yourself. But that is the extent of what it takes to love needy and broken people. That's the necessity of mercy. That's the extent of mercy. But I know, some of, I know that some of you are going, okay, this feels very um, crushing and not fun. And I don't know if I feel up for this. This just feels a little too radical. And to be honest, man, I don't like this either. This is not my vision of what it means to live the good life. I like my comfort, and I like money, and I definitely like my time. And so when this passage says, yeah, to help another human being, you're going to have to cut into some of that. I don't like that either. So what is the motive? Where do we get the motive to live like this? Because this is crazy. Let's just be honest. Where do we get the motive to do this? You know, Christianity, the Bible is not unique. You know, there's tons of people that are telling you to go love the poor, help the needy, take care of broken people's, you know, needs. But do you know what the number one motive that the culture uses to motivate you is, you know what it is? Guilt. It's a guilt. A couple examples. Um, I hate that I missed Ben Folds on Sunday. For those of you who went, um, he was playing at Farthing, and tell me how it was, because I love Ben Folds. But he, he has this song called All You Can Eat. And basically, I'll summarize the song, because I can't quote it. <laughs> it's, it's too explicit. But the basic premise of the song is, look at America. We're all overweight, we drive SUVs, and we shop at Super Walmarts, and we could care less about the skinny, starving kid in Africa. So feel guilty about the fact that you are rich and they are not, and do something. That's basically the point of that song. I love Ben Folds, but he's got the motive wrong. You know, even here at ASU, there, there is a culture at App that values... You know, service that values volunteering, that values social justice, environmental justice. That's just part of sort of the mojo at ASU. But the problem is, is that the culture of ASU does not know how to motivate you because the the motive that the kind of the culture on campus is basically if you're an enlightened, liberal, open-minded person, 
you should do this. You should do this. And duty, which is, is duty, which is rooted in pride when you do it, which is connected to guilt if you don't. Now, sadly, the Christian community, the Christian subculture has kind of tapped into that motive as well and tried to use it. And y'all are not going to like me for this, some of you. Uh, and so I just apologize up front. But, and I have not read much from Francis Chan. I have not read much of his stuff. I haven't listened to much of his stuff. So I may be totally unfair in saying what I'm about to say. So if I'm, if I'm wrong and you know that about him, just forgive me. Don't email me and tell me I'm a jerk. I already know. Just, just, <laughs> just forgive me. But I did see this YouTube video of him where Francis Chan, by the way, if you don't know who that is, he's, he's sort of an up-and-coming, popular Christian speaker, preacher guy. And he stood up in front of his church and he took out two $1 bills and he threw them at the congregation. And, of course, the congregation didn't know what he was doing. He's like, look, do you realize that the rest of the world, the majority of the people on the planet, live off of that each day? And, look, you won't even inconvenience yourself to pick it up off the ground. And his whole point was, look at how rich you are, how poor they are, and now go do something about it. Feel guilty about the fact that you are rich and they are not. And change. And and so here's my point with, with all of this. Has any of that motivated you to do anything? No. I mean, maybe, <laughs> maybe. Look at her. Amen. No. Maybe. For Janae, maybe. But all it does is maybe it would motivate you to, to, to volunteer one weekend or two. Maybe it would motivate you to, to volunteer or to do an alternative spring break or something like that. But, but that, I mean, guilt will never, ever, ever, ever motivate you to do what this is calling you to. This is calling you to something that's too hard, it's too over your head. There's no way that you'd have the power to do it. And in fact, if you try to do it motivated by guilt, you'll just burn out. You just will. I mean, if, you've, if you have ever, for some of you who have sort of personally worked with very poor, very broken, very needy people you quickly realize how soon you come to the end of yourself. And you have to kind of face your own demons as far as why you're, why you're doing it. But, but it is often the case, it's not always the case, but it's often the case that when you work with needy people that uh, you're not appreciated for what you're doing. Uh, you're not thanked for what you're doing. Some, some people abuse your gifts and your time and your money and your resources. And and when you get taken advantage of enough and you realize, okay, this is too costly, this is too painful, I'm just going to go back to just (laughs) caring about me because that's a lot easier than trying to take care of other people's needs. Guilt will burn you out. It just won't do it. It is not the motive that this passage communicates. And so if you've been feeling guilty throughout this whole night of, oh, I know I I need to go do something. I know he's right. Do not, please do not feel guilty. That is not the point of this passage, and that's not the point of what I'm talking about. That's not the way that Jesus motivates you here. He, he instead gives you a motive that is unbelievably revolutionary. Nobody's heard anything like it. And to kind of set it up for you, let, let me just ask you a question. How would you answer this question? What does God owe you? You see, the thing is, is that most people, I think, would go through this, this process in their head and they would say, okay, I think God, I want him to owe me happiness and blessing and all that stuff, but I know he doesn't. 
So I'm just going to bite the bullet and say that God owes me nothing. I know that's what many of you are thinking. You're not quite all the way there yet. Let me ask you another question. How would you define the word grace? Because for a lot of people in the Christian community, we, we've defined grace as favor in the uh, absence of merit. Favor in the absence of merit. And that doesn't go all the way either. Because grace is not just absent, favor in the absence of merit. It is, it is favor in the presence of demerit. So think about it like this. Uh, favor in the absence of merit would be someone coming up and saying, hey, I'm hungry, can I get a meal? And saying, yeah, I will pay for your meal. I don't know them. They didn't do anything to me. It's not like they gave me an iPod or washed my car and so I can give them something in return. They're, they're, they have a clean slate. Favor in the absence of merit. But grace is favor in the presence of demerit, meaning somebody coming up, punching me in the face, and then me giving them a meal. That's what grace is. So what does God owe us? We are people who have punched him in the face. We are people who have clearly not kept this law. We don't love God with everything that we are. And we don't love our neighbor at all. We just love us, right? We come before God as guilty. And so what he owes us is, in fact, punishment and wrath and hostility and judgment. All of that is loaded into this story. Let me show you where I'm getting this. Okay, here's what I want you to see. Jesus is making up this story. And he could have made it up any way he wanted. He could have positioned the characters any way that he, he, he chose to do it. But he chose to make the Samaritan, the hated Samaritan, as the hero. And he chose to make this you know, beaten up Jewish guy laying on the side of the road. Now, what if he had switched it? And he looked at this law expert and he says, Okay, let's say there's this Samaritan on the side of the road and he's beaten up and bloody and unconscious. So let's say a Jewish guy walks up and uh, he's taking care of his needs and he takes him to the inn. I mean, the, the law expert would probably have interrupted him and said, Whoa, 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 whoa. This story is, this doesn't make any sense. Every good Jew knows that these hated Samaritans, you spit on them and you kick them in the ribs and you keep walking. That is the expectation of how you treat your enemy. You don't take care of them. What is this story? This makes no sense. But that's not what Jesus does. He flips it and he puts you, the Jewish guy, on the ground in the position of desperate need. And he puts him in a position where the only one, his only hope, is an act of pure grace and pure mercy by somebody who owed him nothing but hostility. That is the key to unlocking this whole thing. That is the whole thing. Because what Jesus is doing is says, okay, what if you are the one that is lying in the road, dying and needy? What if you are the one where your life is falling apart? And what if you are the one in a position where no one could help you except for somebody who owed you nothing but hostility? See, the motive that Jesus has given you here is he says, before you can live this sort of lifestyle of giving grace to others, you have to drink deeply from it first yourself. You have to put yourself in the story and say, I am desperately needy. And the only one who could care for me was my enemy who owed me nothing but wrath and judgment. But that is not the way that God treats us, right? What God does, instead of pour out his hostility upon us, which he owes us. What he rather does is he pours it out on his son, Jesus. He treats his perfect son in a way that he does not deserve so that we can receive the blessing and the love which we do not deserve either. 
What, what he does is he sends his son to sacrifice everything to meet our needs. That is it. When you begin to wrap your mind and wrap your heart around the, the radical nature of God's grace, only then will you be motivated to give grace to others in the same way that you have received it. And, and that's the motive. The motive is joy inflamed gratitude for what God has done for you in the gospel. And, and when you begin to taste that grace, that is what begins to melt your heart and motivate you to want to go and serve and meet other people's needs with the endless amount of resources that you have in Jesus. I mean, what you have to see is that Jesus looks at us in this story and he says, look, for me to love you, it cut into my safety. It cut into my schedule. It cut deep into my savings. But now go and love on broken and needy people and enter into the lives of really needy people. And they may not thank you. They may never ever repay you. They may never ever get it. But until you learn to serve that person, you will never know what it was like for me to serve you. But he did. And that is why this is good news. I just want to close with, with, with two applications. Just make two applications from this and then we're done, okay? Here's application number one. You need to get in contact with broken and needy people, period. That means that you have to start making different decisions about your life. And, and here are some ways that you can do it. I've just brainstormed. This is not an exhaustive list, but here are just some ideas. The first is that you can volunteer very simply at the hospitality house in Boone or the Hope Pregnancy Center, which is a center set up to help care for uh, teenage pregnant mothers and single moms. You can go volunteer your time there. It's in Boone. Another thing that you can do is just very simply start moving towards people that you normally didn't. Instead of saying, okay, I'm only going to surround myself with people that look like me and are funny and are put together and are attractive, I'm actually going to start moving towards people that are socially awkward and lonely and sort of the outcasts at app. Those are the people I'm going to start moving towards and introduce myself to and try to get to know. You can do that. You can throw a party at your house or at your apartment. And instead of just inviting all your friends and having a great time and just being about y'all, you can actually invite lower classmen to try to connect them to other people. You can really do that. <laughs> Another option you can do is that you can change your ideas about where you move when you graduate. I know for a lot of you thinking, okay, I'm going to go back home, or I'm going to go here, or go whatever. You can decide to move into inner city Charlotte, or inner city Asheville, or Calcutta, India. You can make those kind of decisions and do it. Or here's another option, here's another idea. You can pick a major that isn't focused entirely on setting you up to live a life that just rolls in all of this cash for you. But you actually choose a major and a lifestyle and a vocation of, okay, what can I do to actually help care for other people and make that your life's ambition? One last idea. You can rethink where you live next year. I know a lot of you have housing stuff already situated, but maybe this is for next year. To think through, okay, I could very easily move in with all of my friends and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Or you could say, I'm going to try to move in maybe back into the dorms or, or somewhere where I can get to know somebody that's random, that would be potluck, because my whole motive of doing it would be to be their sort of aid because I know they're going to come in disoriented and lonely just like I was when I got here. But I'm going to try and move towards them to meet that person's need. Just, I'm just brainstorming. These are not exhaustive. You can be creative and pick it up as well and try and think through what you can do.
Application number two. Some of you are going, and some of you have been, the recipients of radical evil. And you have been victimized in such a way where you say, there is no way in the world that I have the resources to do this because on the inside I am empty and I am broken and there's this inner chaos in me that nobody knows about. And the invitation of this passage is just to first put yourself in the story and realize that is me on the side of the road and Jesus is the one who's giving up everything in order to take care of my needs. So just reorient your heart back to Jesus' grace in the gospel. That is it. So let's just conclude with the question we started with. What is the good life? It may look like the L.L. Bean catalog. It may not. But I think it looks more like uh, loving God with everything that you are and loving your neighbor tangibly, meeting their needs with the same enthusiasm that you meet your own, and all of that fueled by God's grace. And will that cut into your safety? Yes. Will that cut into your schedule? Yes. Will that cut into your savings? Yes. Will your life be about you anymore? No. Not anymore. Jesus said, when you lose yourself, that is when you find yourself. So consider that your invitation tonight. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us the grace to see the beauty of your grace to us. Not fa- Father, please do not uh, burden us with guilt. If, if, if we feel guilt, Father, I pray that we would bring it before the cross and, and allow your grace to melt it away and, and that we would be fueled only by love to try and meet the needs of our neighbors and our friends and our enemies because this is precisely how you have treated us. Give us the grace to believe your grace. And to that end we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.